So in looking at this uh, Psalm 118 today, uh, we're picking up from last week where we looked at Psalm 118, how it's used in the New Testament to show that Jesus Christ in the last week of Jesus' life is referred to Christ. Just a reminder real quick, uh, in looking at the series, um, we've been looking from Psalm 113, 118. The Jews would read these Psalms the last week before Christ died, during the week of the pa- leading up to the Passover. So every night, um, the Jews, unbelieving Jews or believing Jews, during the time of Jesus, would have read these Psalms. And I think these Psalms were meant to encourage Jesus, why God allowed these Psalms called the Halal Psalms. It's a minister. And these Psalms appeared, as we saw last week, all throughout the week of the life of Jesus Christ. Okay, All throughout the week of the life of Jesus Christ. Here, when we see here, when we see uh, this passage, uh, this passage today, we're going to see uh, three points, okay? We're going to see this morning three, uh, three points, uh, whereas last week uh, we looked uh, in details of how it's used in the New Testament to show it is. This week we're going to look a little more closer, and th- though this psalm is kind of long, we're not going to be able to look at every single detail of this. But nevertheless, I think when we look at this, there should be... A sense where we should be at all with Jesus Christ. Okay, again, when we look at this, I'm not gonna, uh, and I think the way I'm gonna read uh, in doing this today is, I th- and I think this is the way we read the Bible too. It's almost like a puzzle piece. Whenever you read the Bible, it's almost like uh, playing a game of puzzles. Any of you guys like playing a game of puzzles, like you know those 500 pieces or a thousand? Some of us could be frustrated, but I like it because uh, when you always begin, what do you always begin with? Four pieces. I always look for the corner pieces, right? Because those are the easiest. Okay, you know, there's one on this side. One on this side, one on the other side. And then you go from there, you want to look at the what? Border pieces, right? You go from the clearest to the next clear. And then after that, once you establish the whole border for any puzzle piece, what do you do? Then you start building in to things you don't know, from the things that are clear to the things at first that are less clear, okay? So what we did last week was to look at Scripture to show that this is clearly Messianic prophecy. Then we kind of put in, uh, uh, after the border pieces, then we put in all the other pieces and slowly interpret that to see that this is about Christ. And this is why it's encouraging for me is, um, thinking about Christ gone through the worst thing that anyone ever faced. He basically went to hell and basically suffered, taking the full wrath of God for us, okay? For our sins, to save us. This is the love of God. And yet I also want to see, not only this move us in this time of crisis, also realizing, hey, if Christ gone through a crisis, I want to see the uh, Psalms that help Christ went through that. I want to see the scripture, and these are the scriptures. In the last week of Jesus' life, I so prevailing. And therefore, it should also be able to teach us how do we read the Word of God, and also as well minister to us, seeing a little insight into what it was like for Christ's suffering in the last week of His life. Today we're going to look at this last Psalm. Uh, for this series, these last six psalms, the Halal Psalms, okay? In Psalms 118, we're going to have today three points, okay? How many points? We're going to see three points, okay? Number one, we're going to see request to give thanks to the Lord, okay? Request to give thanks to the Lord. If you're taking notes, point number one is request to uh, give thanks to the Lord. This is in verses 1 through 4, okay? In verses 1 through 4, and also in verse 29, okay? These are the bookends uh, of the psalm, okay? This is the... Um, Beginning and the end, okay? Point number one, this is an application for us all, okay? Request to give thanks to the Lord. Okay, verses 1 through 4, and also verse 29. Point number two, if you're taking notes, we're going to see... So these are three R's for today, okay? Point number two is reasons to give thanks to the Lord. Okay? Reasons to give thanks to the Lord is uh, the focus of verses 5 to 18, okay? Verses 5 to 18. The second R is reasons to give thanks to the Lord. Verses 5 to 18. And number three, realizing the Messiah's work of salvation. Realizing the Messiah's work of salvation. 
That's in verses 19 to 28, okay? Verses 19 uh, 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 to 28. Let me review again the three R's we see of this psalm. Point number one, request to give thanks to the Lord. Verses 1 to 4, verses 29, okay? Point number two, reasons to give thanks to the Lord. Verses 5 to 18, verses 5 to 18. And point number three, realizing the Messiah's work of salvation. Realizing the Messiah's work of salvation, okay? Uh, these are the three R's of of, of seeing all this uh, with the psalm concerning the issue of the Messiah, okay? If you guys can, let's look at, at the uh, point number one, re- request to give thanks to the Lord. This is in verses 1 through 4 and also verse 29, okay? Let me read again verses 1 through 4. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. I'm reading verse 29 now. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Okay? Here we begin with all this. Okay? Why are we looking at all these psalms? Is it just only head knowledge? Okay? Uh, you guys, some of you guys know that uh, I moderate a Facebook group, apologetics group. Sometimes we have young men that are interested in uh, theology for the first time, discovering Calvinism or, or presuppositional apologetics, defending the faith. They're discovering Messianic prophecies. They're discovering philosophy. And then, it remind me when I was younger, right? When you know all this, then you feel like, oh, I'm going to argue. This is so cool. This is, wow, our faith is true and we can stand against uh, objections and stuff like that. But all of these knowledge of Messianic prophecies not should make us more combative, but it actually should make us more loving. Loving that the Messiah is loving towards us. He died and suffered for us. But also loving also in the sense that, hey, if we know this truth, we're just another dying sinner to another dying sinner, giving them the greatest medicine for their soul and for salvation so they won't go to hell is what, that Christ came in and died for us. Okay? So all of these things should have application. And the application, as we see point number one, is we should give thanks to the Lord. Point number one is request to give thanks to the Lord. It's very clear. Why do we know all these things? The psalmist shows the application right away is that we know Messianic prophecy is to make us, knowing that this faith is true, after this, what is the application? Is we should give thanks to the Lord. You see the command, give thanks to the Lord here. Okay, Give thanks to the Lord in verses 1. By the way, this is not just a suggestion. In Hebrew, this is a command, okay? And if you look also in verses 29, also give thanks to the Lord, it also appears. So in the first verse and last verse, it tells us to give thanks to the Lord. Of course, it's almost like uh, Hebrew poetry, is almost like a burger sometime, right? Uh, and the top is what? The buns, and the bottom is the bun, and the middle is the meat. It's why, okay? What it is. So the application is clear. He wants us to give thanks to the Lord, and everything in between is going to be the reasons, okay? So it's a command. And notice who the commands are for. Okay, notice the command R4. This is almost similar to Psalm 113, okay? Um, notice, if, if you look at verses 1, who, uh, who's to give thanks to the Lord? Uh, uh, actually, in verses 3, it is Israel, okay? Then verses 3 also is the house of Aaron, and also um, the, uh, you who fear the Lord. So these are the three groups, okay? And then also, if you guys remember, um, you know, here we see there's things that repeat, okay? In sets of threes. And if things repeat, if things repeat, that's probably important. Notice here, after saying to give thanks to the Lord and saying three different reference of groups who should praise the Lord, if you notice, it gives us already the reasons. In fact, it repeats again three times. It says, for His loving kindness is everlasting. You guys see that in verse 1? You guys see that in verse 2? You guys see that in verse 3? And also, if you look at verse 29, the last of the verse, it also says, for His loving kindness is everlasting. 
Translating this from Hebrew, this is easy because what? I just cut and paste. Does that make sense? Because it already repeats. And it's repeating to drive the point home. That the reason why we give thanks to the Lord is because He is loving kindness is everlasting. This is a theme already we've seen in even Psalm 117 and other Psalms, okay? But now we're going to see, uh, as we go on later on, if the rest of the Psalm, what does it mean that He's loving kindness? Does that mean you're not sick? Is God is loving kindness? By the way, this challenges too. If you only have a prosperity gospel, if you only think God only blesses in health and wealth, then you have problems when people get sick, and all of us will get sick, and all of us will die. Does that mean towards the end of life, God is not loving kindness? But then if the psalm says, His loving kindness is everlasting. I actually think a deeper, mature, as you grow as a Christian, you will grow in maturity, that whether you're sickness or in health, in life or in death, God is always, loving kindness is always shown to us. And how do we know His loving kindness is shown to us, objectively speaking to all people that never changes? Is Christ loved us so much, He died for our sins. That's the greatest way of His loving kindness towards us. Okay, This is very important as we're in a day and age of what coronavirus is, people are concerned, various things that people do get sick, right? As we even seen, even in our own midst of our members, right? Uh, I think of uh, Victor sharing, right? Someone passing away from Wendy's uh, great aunt. We don't know for sure if it is or not, but then it's also respiratory problem. We think of also as well, some of you guys know Oscar from our couples meeting. One of his co-workers, his co-workers got sick and one of them even passed away with confirmed coronavirus. So I want to share with all this. You cannot say, okay, that if you get coronavirus, you're cursed by God. But rather, God loves us still. Okay, whether sickness or in health or whatever else it is, you see the loving kindness of the Lord is going to be expanded in point number two. Okay, so let us now go to so point number one, the application we should thank the Lord. Okay, and don't forget Psalm 117. The nations are also expected to praise God, so don't just say, Oh, this is for Israel. Psalm 117 says the nations, that is Goyims or Gentiles, all of us who are non Jews, should also be praising God. So let's go to point number two. A uh, reason to give thanks to the Lord, okay? The reason cannot be that just His health. When we have good health, praise the Lord. When we have bad health, a God is still working in us to sanctify us, to love Him. So praise the Lord, okay? But reasons to give thanks to the Lord is going to be described in more details in verses 5 to 18, okay? Point number two, we're already at point number two, is reasons to give thanks to the Lord. And I know earlier, even in the first point in verses 1 to 3, we already see we should, the reason is His loving kindness is everlasting. But now we're going to go into details of what does that loving kindness mean, okay? What does that loving kindness mean for everyone, okay? For everyone, okay? So I want to say this is universal blessing for everyone. So it's not just only if you're only born with no illness, with no terminal life condition or mental illness or, or, or disability. This is a blessing for everyone that we can say God is loving kindness towards us all, Okay? This is focused in verses 5 to 18 is the reasons to give thanks to the Lord. Let us look here um, in verses 5. And I want to begin with verses 5 uh, in looking at this. I'm going to read verses 5 first. Verses 5, this is what it says. For my distress, I called upon the name of the Lord. Okay, I called upon the name of the Lord. You'll notice right away that something's different in verses 5. That's different from the section earlier in verses 1 to 4. And the difference is this. Beginning with verse 5 onwards, you're going to see it expand on the reason for giving thanks. But notice how it's spoken. It's not in the third person singular or plural as we see in verses 1 to 4. But now this becomes very personal. Notice the use of what? The word I, the pronoun I. Okay? There's an individual that's speaking. Okay? 
Now, when you read this psalm, I think it might be like you guys perhaps were like me also. When I first read this psalm, many times, and even uh, this week, I was, my question was always, who is this I? Okay? Anytime you see a pronoun, you always ask the question, who is this I? Could this be the psalmist, the guy that's writing it? Could this be something we could go into? Could, could I apply this psalm for myself? Or is this talking about the suffering Messiah? Or is this talking about the suffering Messiah? Now, let me make this clear. When you read Psalm 118, there's a lot of part with this I, it could describe your situation. You might say, oh, you know, I have a hard day at work. Oh, you know, enemies surround me, okay? Those that hate me, okay? And I think there is a sense that there's some application from that. But I want to ask primarily, who is this I that's speaking about? I know we live in a day and age, I think sometimes in our culture we could be quite narcissistic, yes? Uh, our culture promote that selfishness. Everything is about me, myself, and I. It's the unholy trinity today, right? It's about me, myself, and I, okay? Even there's a song about that, okay? But all that is to say that in light of all this, we must ask the question. Don't, I know we're so easily triggered to right away see I as, oh, it's me, I could relate. This psalm is relating to me, my trials, all that. I think there's a place for that. I, I'm not totally against it. But I actually think sometimes we need to be careful to say, is this for sure? This is who I is. That it's talking about ourself. I actually think the best way to interpret the I here is not talking about you and I first. It's not talking about me, Jimmy Lee first, okay? I actually think this I in verses 5 onwards is actually in this psalm, this I is actually not talking about you or I, it's actually talking about the Messiah. It's actually talking about the Savior of this world. It's actually talking about the one that fulfills this prophecy, this prediction, thousands of years before it happened. It's talking about Jesus Christ. Now you might ask me, why would I say this? I think there's some good reason. Number one, if you guys remember, when we look at Psalm 116, you guys remember that a few weeks ago on a Tuesday? We made the argument that the Psalm 116, if you ever read Psalm 116, you just read on your own, just that even after a read, you know that Jesus Christ is going to read this the last few hours and days before he dies. When you see this, it's like, wow, this is talking about suffering. He's surrounded, he does all these bad things. Wow, does this passage apply the most to Jesus Christ? I've already made the argument that Psalm 116 is about Jesus Christ. So I think to be consistent in light of these collections, in light of Psalm 116, the eye being the, about the Messiah, prediction about Jesus Christ, and this perspective through Jesus' eyes of his suffering, I think this is the, my argument too, is because of his proximity. But I don't only give a proximity argument. Another reason why is you look at the psalm, there's some details of what this individual goes through that cannot be talking about you or I, okay? That this person has certain rights, certain prerogatives, certain characteristics that does not describe you and I as New Testament believers. We don't have, this is not descriptive of us. Look with me in verses 10 to 12, okay? Look with me in verses 10 to 12. There's a phrase that repeats three times. If you notice here in the psalm, there's a lot of things that repeats a lot, okay? By the way, let me say this also as well before I look at verses 10 to 12. This psalm, actually, every if you look at these 29 verses, every verse mentioned about God. Every single verse mentioned about God. In fact, it mentioned about God more than even Psalm. Now, I know everything is about God, but the name of God is mentioned more in every single verse. Verses 1 to uh, 29. Every single verse is mentioned about God. So this already makes us clue in that this cannot be, probably not narcissistic reading about us. By the way, Psalm 1, uh, this chapter, more than any other Old Testament uh, books, or any other Old Testament chapter, mentioned about God more than any other chapter. Even 119, which is the next psalm over, is the longest psalm, right? Many verses, right? I one time preached uh, for Sunday school. When we used to have Sunday school, when I taught, we spent 30 minutes <laughs> reading this. And then 30 minutes for me explaining all, all those verses, okay? 
But this verse actually has more mention about God, the name Yahweh, than even Psalm 119, even though Psalm 119 is longer, okay? So I'm bringing up to say is this, Psalm 118 is all these verses about God, Psalm 118, every single verse is about, is about the Word of God, okay? And so I think this leans us that this I is not talking about you or I, but if you look also as well, 10 to 12, what is something that repeats a lot? It is the phrase, I will surely cut them off. Do you guys see that? It's mentioned in verse 10, do you see that? Verse 11, it mentioned, I will surely cut them off. Verses 12, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you guys would say, okay, this, if you say this verse is about me, do you guys have the right to just kill people? Uh, uh, not in the context of self-defense, right? Not in the context of defending God's uh, name. Do you have the right for that? I hope not. I hope you guys will not say this, okay? So this individual here cannot be talking about you or I, okay? Because we don't have the prerogative, the right to say, oh, okay, you know what? You're my enemy, I therefore I cut you off, okay? Yeah, as a personal individual ethic, okay? I'm going to tell you about law enforcement or military context. That's something else. Uh, a different set of ethics uh, govern that, okay? So this here clearly cannot be talking about uh, literally, you and I. But I also want to pay attention a little bit to the word cut them off. Okay? I want to pay attention to the word cut them off. Literally, in the Hebrew, you could translate this as circumcise. Remember Jews? One of the signs that you're a Jewish male is you are circumcised. Okay? Certain things happen to you if you're a male with certain parts of your body. We'll keep rated G for godliness for now. Okay? So here, this person say, I'm going to circumcise. And they even talk about circumcised Gentiles. Okay? Now, who has a right to circumcise? Maybe your own kids and everything else. But then who has a right over your enemies, okay? So this is not talking about you or I, okay? This, this is not talking about you or I. By the way, also think, if you guys could turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I think there's another kind of uh, circumcision in the Old Testament. I mean, this is the second time this uh, phrase appears, circumcision of the heart. The first time is Deuteronomy 10, where uh, Moses says, hey, you guys got to circumcise your heart. But then what does that mean? Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 explains that. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 explains that. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Notice, by the way, who does the circumcision? God. He will circumcise your heart and your heart and your descendants. So what does it mean if you have a circumcised heart that God has circumcised your heart? No, it says, To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Okay? So if this phrase is circumcised heart and if also circumcision of heart is not all negative but also has a positive connotation. Notice paying attention to, uh, attention to details matter. That means, and it shows here, only the one person that can circumcise people's heart is what? God then this psalmist here is not talking about you or I. It's actually talking about the Messiah who could kill people, yes, uh, for judgment of sin, and also circumcise people, but also not circumcise only people for judgment, but also even circumcise people's heart spiritually for salvation. This clear, psalm is clearly not talking about you or I first. This is talking about the Messiah. So in light of this, we're going to see the situation. Let's see the situation. Look at verses 5. Turn back with me to Psalms 118, verse 5. Okay? So I, I hope I established clearly this is talking about the Messiah. This is not talking about you and I. Let's look at the situation of the Messiah. Of why even the Messiah and you and I could also praise God. Of what God's working through the Messiah. Look at verses 5. Uh, verses 5, you guys turn back with me to Psalms 118, verse 5. It says, Oh, that my ways... Uh, correction. Verse 5. For my distress, I call upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. You see the, uh, the dire situation? Literally in the Hebrew here, 
uh, literally in the Hebrew, it, with verses 5, it's from my distress, I, uh, I call upon, literally what it is, is from narrowness, a broad room place, okay? It's basically saying he's like, feels like he's being squeezed, okay? And yet God answered him, saved him. In fact, look at the detail of the Messiah, of this individual, what he's going through, okay? Not necessarily everyone has this situation in their life, so it cannot be talking about you and I in a crude, simplistic sense, okay? Look at the situation of the Messiah that he goes through. We're not going to look at every single verse, but we're going to see some of the highlights here of the negative situation or tough situation. If you look with me in verses 7, he is hated, okay? Because verse 7 says, The Lord is uh, uh, for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction those who hate me. So this individual is hated. The Messiah is being hated. Look at me also as well in verses 10 to 12. Apparently, the nations surround him. That is, he, though he's a Jewish man, apparently there are also those who are non-Jewish, what we call Gentiles, are surrounding him. Look with me, the details stated four times in verses 10 to 12, okay? So, so that we don't miss this. This is not talking about you and I. This is talking about the Messiah. Verses 10, all the nations surrounded me. Point number, like first time reference, okay? In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Remember the theme about cutting them off? Okay, this is not talking about you and I, okay? Verses 11, they surround me. Second time you see the word sur- uh, surround. Yet, uh, they surrounded me. Third time. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Or maybe another way to translate this, I will circumcise them, okay? Verses 12, they surround me for the fourth time. Like bees, they were, were extinguished as far as uh, of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Four different times. For emphasis to not miss the fact. That the Messiah will be surrounded by enemies, including those that are not Jewish. They'll be hated upon, and he'll also be treated violently. Look with me in verses 13. You pushed me violently, so I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Okay? So here you see that he's being treated violently also as well. Okay? Could it be possible that Messiah, when he's being, um, when he was being whipped, when they put him in purple robes, when he was being mocked, when they were pulling his beard, could it be possible that they've pushed him around physically? I think so. Okay? If they've done all these bad things, how much more so when he's carrying a cross, pushing him just to make him suffer? And yet also as well, you see that death is his fate. Death is what he goes through. Verses 18, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. I'm going to explain this a little bit later on. That is also talked about he'll face death, but also he will be resurrected also as well, okay? And look at the deliverance described. Despite this harrowing situation of the Messiah, you see that his, this, this psalm, all, uh, the section of the psalm also describes God's deliverance, okay? Look with me in verses 14. Uh, deliverance meaning God has rescued him, okay? God the Father has rescued this Messiah. Verses 14, The Lord is my strength and song, and He's become my salvation, okay? He will be able to sing a joyful song one day, He'll also see the strength of God, the power of God in display, and he'll also be saved from the fate of uh, his judgment. Look with me also as well in verse 17. He'll be able to live again, okay? I know it says will not die, but he's able to live again, okay? And so you see the deliverance, okay? The, this deliverance is amazing, okay? All the details, we're not going to hit every single part of it. D- despite the heroin situation, he's rescued to such a point that he could even be singing, and sings of songs of joy. And I think it's incredible. The last week of Christ's life, he was singing these psalms. The last night, the last few hours before he died, he was singing this song. 
And yet this song will also sing and say, hey, this is not be his last song. This is not a swan song. Because this is, even though he sings this, this sing, song is saying, hey, he will one day sing again a song of joy. So now we want to ask a question, thinking about it a little bit, putting ourselves in Jesus' shoe. Jesus singing this last song, what would it have meant for him at that night before he's going to go on the cross? Thinking about this psalm, reading about this, Jesus would have known ahead of time that, you know what, the nations will surround him. Jesus was judged by not only the Jewish religious leaders, authorities, but he was also judged by the Roman governor, Pilate, who's a Gentile, non-Jewish person, and he will be killed and crucified in the hand of what? Roman soldiers, okay? Roman soldiers. Now, Roman soldiers oftentimes were mercenaries from other different, because Rome is a small city. Not everyone's a Roman citizen. So Rome, to run an empire, would often use, when they have, besides a Roman legion, which is kind of like their advanced troop, that's almost like their army airborne troops or their um, Marine Corps, okay? If the Roman legion shows up to your town, that's a bad sign. They're here for death, mayhem, and destruction. And they'll say, hey, fire the death blossom. And then boom, just death blossoms all over, okay? But how they would do all this here, in all of this, okay, is the everyday soldiers that run different um, districts in governing would often be different people, Italians or whatever else, okay? There'll be Gentiles. The nations would have been represented among those soldiers. So here you see, the, in the last life of Jesus, uh, last moment of Jesus Christ, he will be surrounded by that. And yet, this psalm ministered to him and spoke about a situation well. And by the way, I think sometimes for me, reading the scriptures, if it describes my t- trials that I go through, it already is comfort, does it not? Knowing that God knows my circumstance. Likewise, also as well with Jesus Christ. Yet, Jesus going to the death, he also had hope because of verse 17. Death is not the final say of his life. This reading this as he's suffering, as he's going through all this, even as he's crying out, My God, my God, my have forsaken me, there is this hope that he will be resurrected. And three days later, it happened, did it not? Also, want to call attention if you look with me in verses 15 to 16, I'm going to read this again. I think this is really relevant to speaking to Jesus Christ the night before he's going to die, the week before he's going to die, and also on his death as he's focusing on the scripture to go and endure. All that suffering, yet without sin, without cursing God, without any wrongful, sinful, negative thoughts, okay? Let me read again in verses 15 to 16. It says this, The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tent of the Lord. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Verse 16, The right hand of the Lord, stop there real quick. You see the phrase, right hand of the Lord? How many times does it repeat thus far? Twice, okay? Count along with me. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord, times number what? Three, okay? Does valiantly, okay? So there's a repetition of the phrase, the right hand of the Lord. Now we ask the question, who's in the right hand of the Lord? What do you guys think? Who, who do you guys think is in the right hand of the Lord? Is it you and I? Yeah. My wife says the answer is Jesus Christ, saying that out loud, okay? By the way, do we see even the last week of Jesus' life, people arguing about who should be in the right hand of Jesus? And who should be in the right hand of God? They were competitive spirit because they were filled with themselves. We could be like the disciples. Just before you diss the disciples, realize, hey, we are so much more like the disciples in our sinful human nature, in our selfishness, more than we realize. Let's find out the answer from Scripture. Who is in the right hand of the Lord? Put your pinky or thumb in Psalm 118 and turn with me to Matthew 22, okay? Turn with me to Matthew 22. We're going to find the identity of who is this right in the right hand of the Lord, Okay. 
Uh, Matthew 22, I'm going to give a little more, it's a little more complex to give this argument, but I think Matthew 22 verses 44 shows who is in the right hand of the Lord, okay? Matthew 22 verses uh, 44, if you guys could turn there, this is also in the last few days before Christ would die, okay? Matthew 22 verses 44, Matthew 22 verse 44, let me slowly turn there. This is what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put make put your enemies beneath your feet. This is when Jesus was arguing with the religious leaders. They want to kill him. They want to shame him, make him lose an argument in front of all his followers and all the people. And Jesus then quotes a messianic psalm, Psalm 110. That's actually this is number one most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Number two is Psalm 118. And Jesus basically saying, "Hey, why does the Bible says the Lord says to in David's writing here says to my Lord, and is talking about David's son? How could David's son be called Lord? And yet God speaks to him and say, "Hey, sit in my right hand." Right in verse forty-four, his argument is say, "Who is his son? Who's a special son?" And obviously, this is about himself. Okay, turn with me also to Matthew twenty-six, verse forty-four. Matthew twenty-six. So I, look at that. It's established the point that even the Old Testament made it very clear. Even in the Old Testament already, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. And he's the one that's in the right hand of the Lord. Not you and I. Matthew 26, verses uh, 64, he's talking about in the future, in the end times. It says this, Jesus said, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That one day, Jesus Christ will come back from the clouds again. Okay? Uh, And yet, he's in the right hand of God. So Jesus Christ, reading this, even as he's suffering, he realized, you know what? God will not forsake him forever. Yes, God will punish him for the sins of all the world, but God's purpose is so that he could be lifted up, sitting in the right hand of God the Father. Okay? And fulfilling. And him sitting in the right hand of the Father, will he also bring a train, a whole parade, of all of us who are saved by his grace. Okay? So we see this. And now let's go to point number three. We need to realize... The Messiah's work of salvation. We need to realize the Messiah's work of salvation. This is in verses 19 to 28. Now last week, last Sunday, when we look at Psalm 118 in the New Testament, all the verses you'll pay attention was primarily quoted from this section. Okay, This is very explicit in terms of it pointing out to Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, Verses 19 to 28, we're not going to look at every single thing, but I want to hit the parts Verses 19 to 28 that we didn't really focus upon as much, okay? That isn't uh, as heavily quoted in the New Testament, okay? Looking at this psalm, if you look at this section, verses 19 to 28, realizing the Messiah's work of salvation, let's begin with verses 19, the first verse of this section. And I think the words are astounding. If you pay attention, listen, paying attention to verses 19, you'll be like, this is a pretty amazing stuff, okay? This is one of the reasons why I say this is not talking about you or I, because the details can only fit one person, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, which Jesus Christ fulfilled. Verse 19 says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. Okay? I shall give thanks to the Lord. If you pay attention in the Hebrew, this is not asking, can I, may I? This is actually a command. And this is a command to who? Towards God, the Father, saying, Hey, open the gates of righteousness. 
And I, uh, by the way, could it all could any of us go to God and say, "Hey, God, you should say, God save me right now." You have to, or is that irreverent? In fact, if you do that, that might be a sign you don't understand God's grace and your sinfulness. Okay, we don't have a right to demand to tell God you must do this. That's almost like you go up to your mom and dad and say, "Hey, do this or else, or do this." Right? We don't have a position. But do you see this in verse nineteen? This man. In the Hebrew, is very clear. It's an imperative verse. This is not a, a Hebrew cal perfect where it's like suggestive of saying, hey, may I or should I? This person has a right to enter the gates of righteousness. Do you and I have the, that much righteousness to enter in the gates of righteousness by ourselves? No. I'm a sinner. I sin every day. Okay? I know my, I hate, I know my own sin. I hate my own sin before I hate the sin of you guys. Your sins. Because why? I live myself and I see an enemy within. All my guilt, all my shame, all everything uh, um, are righteous. And yet this individual is not like anyone else. This is not David. David also as well, in, in, a lot of this song has echoes from the words of David. But you might say, oh, this might be David. No, it's not King David. David is a sinner. He had the sin of Bathsheba, remember? He committed the sin of murder. In fact, he's killed so many people. God says, you don't have a right to build a temple. It's going to be someone else that's going to build the first temple in Jerusalem. This is not David who's committed adultery, unfaithfulness, right? Uh, unfaith- uh, sinning with God. This individual could be so righteous, he could say, hey, I order the gates of righteousness to be open for me. And, and then it might say, the angels could say, hey, do you have enough righteousness? Yes, I do. Notice his confidence. In verses 19, it goes on and says, I shall enter through them. He is certain that he will enter the gates of righteousness. And therefore, he thanks God for that. So this is no ordinary gate, by the way, because in verses 20, it says, uh, I shall uh, explain a little bit more that this is the gate of the Lord. Okay. This is God's gate. In other words, this is heaven's gate. This is not the gates of Jerusalem. This is not the gates of your house or gates of the church, okay? Which is closed at this time of coronavirus. But here this is talking about the gates of heaven will be open for this individual. And yet when the gates open up, you see this. This is incredible. That because he goes in first, others could follow along with him. A parade, a march of other people that believe in him. Because it says in verses uh, 20, it says the righteous will enter through it. Because he entered through it first. This is an incredible prophecy of what the Messiah has done, of what Jesus Christ, listen, has accomplished for you and I, okay? Uh, And this is why it says in verse 21 that he thanks God, that God answered, and he's been saved. And therefore, verse 22, this is the context of why it says the stone which the builders rejected, right? It's saying, how did he accomplish to enter into this? It's because he's been rejected. He's been killed. He's been crucified. And now He's resurrected. He enters into the gate of heaven. And therefore, He's going to bring you and I into the gates of heaven itself. Okay? Again, this is not... I'm not butchering the passage. Notice how attention to details of the Bible matters. We could easily read the psalm and think it's... Oh, just read this nice psalm. Okay? But this is talking about the Messiah. This is why we spend time to look through the Hebrew and, and grammar. This is why we spend time, attention to details, in hearing God's Word explained clearly, verse by verse, to see this is about the Messiah's work of salvation. It is about the Messiah's work of salvation. By the way, this work is not an easy thing. It's not as if, sometimes I think we think, oh, Jesus Christ is about sin. Oh, it's easy because, you know, Jesus Christ is what? He has His God part nature and it helps Him out. But I think the best example is, I think Jesus is like, uh, a swimmer. You guys know once uh, once in a while people swim the English Channel from England to France through that part of the ocean that's called the English Channel. Okay, 
Now, when they do those, when those guys do those record and the people are trying to beat the best time, right? When they swim, are there people? Do they do those guys that uh, do those swim? Do they do it themselves? Yeah, they swim themselves. But are there are there people that are there watching them? Is there a boat nearby? Yeah. So so if they were drowning, would someone help them? Yeah. But then you can't say you can't say to someone that swam the English Channel say, "Oh, you know what? You had help, right?" They would be pretty offended. Yes. They'll say, "Yeah, I know there's a boat nearby that could have helped me, but I still did it on my own human what? Effort." Yes. And that's like the Messiah. That's like Jesus Christ in his humanity. In his humanity, he did not use any cheat. He did not pull over the lifeboat and say, "Hey, hold me for a little bit of life preserver." No, he swam the English Channel. He more than that, the, it's like swimming to the Pacific Ocean from here to China, which no one has ever accomplished. An incredible, and, and Christ in his humanity came and he fulfilled it because it says very clearly in verses eighteen, he was severely disciplined uh, by the Lord. He suffered. He poured, he took on the wrath of God and he saved us and accomplished so he could enter into the gates. Being the parade for all of us into heaven. This is a marvelous song. As the details got more darker, the, yet God's grace increases as you see the pattern of the song. And yet we must think and ask the question: For Jesus singing at the Last Supper, this would have how would what would this mean for him? What would this mean for him? Again, I already covered last week just how prevailing. It is, right? You guys, do you guys marvel that Psalm 118, you guys know that the Jewish religious leaders, I think it was rank hypocrisy. They're going to kill Jesus Christ, and then the next day when he's crucified, the high priest was not there. He's going into the sacrifice. While Jesus Christ was being died, he's going into that temple. And you know what the Jews, as a custom, they would sing? Psalm 113 and 118. And they'll repeat Psalm 118 again. And then the rest of the Levites will be singing. Also as well. You guys realize how incredible that is? Jesus, that God in His sovereignty could put the very own Psalms about the death of the Messiah and also about how they, the builders, rejected in the very own mouth of Jesus' uh, enemies. Predicting and testifying in the very mouth of... I mean, you talk about like stones crying out for the glory of God. How much even more so, more powerful, that even the enemy's own will... God could put it, yes, they have a will, but yet in God's sovereignty could put that in that they would sing praises to Jesus that He would save us from our sins. For Jesus singing at the last psalm, this would have meant a lot. Look with me also in verses 20. Uh, and remember, by the way, uh, when Jesus was dying, remember how I made the argument that the word cut off could be circumcised? Now, I know in the context, there's a dark connotation. Hey, these guys do these things, therefore they'll be cut off. But I think there's also a positive shade meaning of circumcision of the heart. When Jesus was dying, those murderers that killed him, the Roman soldiers and all that, did anyone get saved? Yeah. Remember the Roman centurion? Isn't it incredible that the psalm talked about the circumcision of the nations? And yet, the Roman soldier, the centurion, would be one of the first signs already in Jesus. You realize around Jesus' death, there's all these acts of grace. This Roman soldier had a change of heart, a circumcised heart that God has changed, that Christ has changed, so that he would testify, you are the Son of God and believe in the Lord's sake. You realize how amazing grace that is, that the one could murder Jesus. Murder is a heinous sin, but you can murder the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet still find grace 
because of Christ circumcising his heart, an act of God's sovereign grace. And yet also as well, remember the Roman, uh, besides that person, there's another person that got saved that day. Is who? It is the thief on the cross who mocked him. There were two thieves. Both mocked him. But one of them later had a change of heart who trusted and believed in him and said, today, and said, you know, remember me. Do you guys remember that? Remember we even look at another psalm earlier that there was another psalm with the theme of remember me, Right? And yet God remembered, and Jesus said, You know what? I remember today you will be with me where? In paradise. So when Jesus knocks on the gates of righteousness, in the Lord's gate, He will go in with confidence. But bringing with Him, one of the first ones He will bring along with Him is who? That thief. By the way, I don't have time to go over this. I don't think that person is a thief. I think the word thief is a slang because leader is Barabbas. If you read, Barabbas is actually an insurrectionist. He's leading a revolt. He's basically a terrorist. And one of the terrorist organizations of their day were called bandits. Kind of like today, we call the Taliban. Uh, Taliban. But Taliban uh, in Hebrew, uh, not correction, in Arabic, when I took Arabic back in the day with the Marine Corps and PCC and stuff, uh, Talib means students. Students of Quran. Of course, they're not real students. They're terrorists. Okay, that's just their nickname for themselves. Same thing, yet you see murders forgiven. Talk about amazing grace of God. But I also want to end looking with me in verses 27. Look with me in verse 27. It says, Bind the festival cord, festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The Jews would have what? Offered sacrifice during the festival, during the Passover week. And here it says he uh, 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 with cords to the horn of the altar. Okay, do we see the phrase horn? Uh, correction, the phrase cords anywhere else in the psalm collection? Yeah, turn with me to Psalm one sixteen verse three. Turn with me to Psalm one sixteen verse three. Psalm one sixteen verse three says, "The cords of death encompass me, and the terrors of Sheol co- uh, comes upon me. I found distress and sorrow." Psalm 116 verse 3 helps us interpret Psalm 118 verse 27. They have something in common. What are the things they have in common? They both use the same word chords, number one. And both, number two, they both involve death. Psalm 118 says sacrifice. Here it says what? The chords of death have surrounded me, right? Hell, Sheol. There are actually two sides of the same coin. One mentioned it in the negative light of death, of sorrow. He's being choked out. He's, which by the way, Christ on the cross is also a drowning experience, right? Think about him on the cross. By the way, the, uh, in feeling all the liquid going to his lung, he will feel like what? Drowning. Couldn't breathe. So what do you do when people feel like can't breathe? You go up, right? Lift yourself body up. But while he's holding himself up to be able to uh, breathe a little bit, to be, you know, breathe, because the feeling of drowning is horrific, right? But yet, could he, it's almost like being in, holding yourself in a pull-up position. Could you hold it forever? No, so you go back down. And by the way, do you think the crucified cross, do you think it was very smooth wood? Like wood you buy from, um, I don't know, uh, uh, what's that place called? Uh, Home Depot, right? No, it's not smooth. You think they'll smooth out for you? No, nah, they're going to do work. Make them suffer more. His back is scratched for you, right? And yet the negative side is he's being choked out. He is suffering hell, Sheol itself, and he's also experiencing death as one. But you know what the other side of the uh, coin is? Is this for a purpose? One sixteen verse three says, "This is the cord of death." Is for what? Is for sacrifice. Is to save us from our sin. 
is to provide us the horn of salvation, is to die to save you and I so that we could have hope. Why are we going over these psalms, especially in the day and age of the church and the day and age of coronavirus is this? I think it's to make us look at the cross. If you go on Facebook, if you go on any social media, actually, if you just go online, everything is what? I don't know about you guys. When I go on my Facebook feed, I love how Andrew, because he's in East Asia, he was telling me, hey, this is what we've been experiencing a few weeks and a few months before you. You're going to do the same thing. At first, I said, hey, our church is going to meet. And Andrew's like, hey, you know what? We were saying the same thing. We're going to meet. At first, everyone's like, yeah, we'll be hardcore Christians, right? We're going to die for Jesus. And the next moment, it's like, oh, you know what? The whole world is shutting down. The government's like, ah, no debate anymore. We can't meet. We can't even meet anyways, right? And then he was like, hey, that's kind of true. And then he was telling me, you know what? The next thing that happened with us is everyone is at home. And what are they doing? They're on their device, right? The time and device. And all the reading is just news. And then you read all these crazy news. Some people say, hey, there's no virus. It's a conspiracy. And some say, oh, no, it's really, really bad. And some people say, oh, all these things, you know, there's food shortage and all these things. And you're reading, it's like, oh, everything else, right? And some people say it's some military thing. By the way, it's both country. Conspiracy theories, all, I mean, you know, and you're reading all this in despair. But sometimes we need to take a step back and say, hey, the more you read about the circumstance, the more anxious you get. But why read Psalm 113, 118 is in the midst of all these suffering, I don't know about you, but in the midst of suffering, what I'm doing a lot now is reading, okay? I recently read a book about um, six days, the world, uh, or 13 days where the world almost ended. You guys realize the world almost ended in 1962 or 61 in the Cuban Missile Crisis? You guys ever heard about that? When Russia sent miss- nuclear missiles to Cuba. And we weren't sure at that time we had it. We sent spy planes looking over. But not, later on, it turned out that, wow, they really did. And the United States was going to invade with two, a 200,000-man army. And we did not know back then they already had nukes. And they were saying if the United States invaded, it, they would blow that nuke and shoot all the missiles and blow Washington, D.C. And the United States also said, hey, we get nuke, all the nuclear submarines, if they don't get any orders uh, from us, they don't hear from us, every sub had to come up and fire all the missiles to Russia. And we were that close to the end of the world. And when I was reading this book, I was reading how John F. Kennedy, he was going through that tough time. I mean, think about it. No one would ever want to be a president. I don't know why anyone would be president. But he had to burden the world. While his son was coming into the White House, his son, JFK Jr., he's thinking, man, I have the burden of the world not being able to end. And during that time, he was reading a book called The Guns of August, which was about World War I. And I was like, wow, I read that book too. And he draws strength from that. Because he saw, hey, these guys had it even harder. I don't know how he, I think that when he says it was incredibly hard. It's the end of the world, not just only end of Europe, okay? And he was reading another book. That, and then, of course, those people then, World War I, going through things, read other books, right? You guys realize C.S. Lewis and J.R. Uh, Tolkien, you guys realize they wrote those incredible book of what? Narnia, and what's the other one? Um, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. They were writing in the trenches of World War I, reading other people's books. So I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to draw is this. For us in the days of coronavirus, what we need to do is not just escapism. We need to see people other tough times to encourage us to go through. But we need to see the toughest trials anyone's ever go through. Where the world salvation of everyone, not just the world, but every one of us going to hell was on the line. And yet that one hero, Jesus Christ, came. And he fulfilled it all, tempted by Satan, was cut off, was, 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 was judged and attacked by the Gentiles and also by the Jews, was, faced betrayal, faced loneliness, right? Faced all these things with great trauma, with all these things, and yet he endured it all. 
And he died without complaining towards God, without sitting at all, and, and suffered on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And the world turning dark, everything else being mocked, being crucified, physically hurting, everything else. And then on all of this, the, I think the sign of the darkness is a sign of God coming over. Right, Satan has his laugh, but I think that in the angelic realm we cannot see when God comes over. I think the angel, demons were even afraid and fled because now God poured out His full wrath, and so that Jesus Christ would say, "My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me?" And did all this to die for you, yes, you. As we see the psalm, He thought of God and He also thought about those He will redeem to save us from our sins, so that our worlds, so that our number one greatest problem today has been solved if, if you trusted in Him. My brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you have hope even in the midst of this virus. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that when everything get back to normal, the chance might be someone will get virus. The chance is going to church might be that you might get virus. It might be, I'm not, there's no promise, but it will say, hey, you know, it's worth it. it. Or not, it's worth it. It's okay. I have this hope. Your biggest problem has been solved. But I want to speak today to those of you guys that are listening that have not trusted in Jesus Christ today. I hope you see the last few weeks of these Psalms that the Bible is true. That the Bible is so true that I'm willing to die for Jesus Christ. I'm willing to die for Jesus Christ here on America. I'm willing to die for Jesus Christ overseas. I'm willing to be arrested. I'll just play dumb, whatever. Say you preach the gospel. I'm, I mean this with every breath of my mouth. Not because I'm phony tough. There's days I'm weak, okay? But I'm saying this because this faith is true. That Jesus Christ really came on earth. Thousands of years before it happened, all these prophecies says that He would die very particularly. He'll be from this family. Everything is that you can't even, He can't even ordain it. He can't do it Himself unless it is true. He came on earth to die for you. Will you trust in Him? To be saved means putting his trust, believing that he was perfect, believing that he died, and believing that he was resurrected. Please today, trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What a pretty good God, yes? Pretty good plan? Anyone got a better plan? I think the answer is not. So let's close in a word of prayer, okay? Our Father in Heaven, thank you for this incredible prophecies. That is found in Psalm 118. Thank you for the incredible promises and prophecies we've seen from the last few weeks of Psalm 113 to 118. Lord God, I pray for understanding in people's minds. And I pray for people's heart that even as we were going through this, they leap for joy, leap for joy, knowing the awesome wonder and glory of the gospel and glory of Christ. Lord God, I pray for anyone, if they do not know you, circumcise their heart, draw them, and regenerate them, change your heart, make them to new creation so that they will be able to respond to you and believe in you. Lord, we're so thankful for your sovereign grace is the reason why we could pray for those that do not know you. I pray, Lord, especially for those that have been to church so many times and still do not know you, please, Lord, Work in them to save them. And Lord God, allow us, Lord, to even love you more and to serve you more and to love those around us, even those that are difficult because of the wonder of what you've done. Move us as Christians to follow and obey you even when it is hard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.